Welcome to our podcast, Transparently Speaking. I am Diana, and I have a son who transitioned at a young age to become his true self. And I am Joy. I have also supported my daughter to transition at an early age. We are here to share our experience and our learning along this journey. We want to provide support and guidance parent to parent. And if you find yourself on a similar journey, we want you to know that you are not alone. So let's dive in, transparently speaking. Diana, we were just reflecting on how quickly summer has gone and knowing that some schools are already back in session. Craziness. Given my personal experience and given what's been happening around the U.S., we thought it might benefit our listeners to talk about or ways to think about approaching schools given the changing landscape. If in fact you or someone you know has a transgender, non-binary, other gender creative student or child that might be struggling in terms of seeking support. Yeah. And I think we've talked a little bit a few times in past episodes um, that you can see, I think there's a schools part one and two, and there might even be a third episode, but I think the bigger thing is the landscape has changed in the last year, especially so that the approach is a little bit different. Now, some things are the same. Some things are different. I think as a parent, you have to be more knowledgeable and help your administrators have answers for what pushback they may receive. And I think there are more things to think about than before. Like, for example, facilities. I can think about 10 years ago, you know, with Clark, like nobody had thought about it at all. So it was kind of like a fresh landscape. And it was like, what should we do? And it was a very open conversation. Well, now there's been discussion, been uh, debates about it that I think some schools have fear making those decisions now. And so it becomes more important to support them. And my favorite way to support them, and some of this is kind of knowing the laws in your area. So I'm going to tell you the way I can do it in our area. And then I'll tell you how to extrapolate it if you're not in our area. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a federal court just below the Supreme Court, has made the decision twice, once in 2017, once a week ago, that students should be allowed to use the facilities for how they identify. Meaning, if you identify as a male, you may use the men's bathroom. If you identify as a female, then you can use the girls' locker room. And yes, I'm speaking on the binary because that's where bathrooms and lockers are set up. But that's what they've decided. And so the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals covers about seven states. And so for those people that live in one of those seven states, I often tell them to tell their administrators, my child would, if this is the case, of course, I'd check with the child first, but my child wants to use the bathroom and locker rooms for how they identify If you get pushback, you can let them know that the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals has decided twice in favor of this. And so it's out of your hands. You don't even have to make it like it's your decision. It is out of your hands. It has been decided upon twice, once a week ago. I'm wondering, you might have gotten a little mixed up with the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals being seven states. It's actually only three states. It's actually just Wisconsin, Illinois, and Indiana for our listeners. Yes, Correct, Joy. It's three states. Thank you for that. Now, if you're outside of these states, you can still use it to some degree, saying there seems to be a consistent decision among the higher courts. 
and it costs the districts a lot of money. You know, we have concerns about that. So you can still use it. Say, hey, this is how you answer. This could cost your district a lot of money to do this. And I just want to back up to say there's a difference to me between strategy and talking about what's right or wrong. This is not how I would normally like to talk about it. I'd like to just say people should use the bathroom for how they identify. But when I'm talking with schools, I've got to use strategies. I use like what is going to be used against us. The ideal part, and some people may disagree with my approach, and I totally respect that. But the ideal part to me is I am like, what do I need to say? Not to manipulate, but to answer the questions that they are going to have. Diana, you often kind of remind me that the way you talk with me or about things is, you know, different than how you would be approaching your audience. And that's really important. A note to make here is think about what outcome are you seeking? Think about who your audience is. Think about what their agenda might be. Think about the challenges and barriers they might be facing in order to support a better outcome for you in terms of what you're looking to actually achieve. And that's hard. Yeah, (laughs) it is hard. It is. I I almost, to be honest, I almost take the emotion out of it. Like I mentally prepare myself going into it and I try to put myself, and I've talked about this before in a collaborative, we want the same thing. We want, we want the best outcome for students, the best academic, how can I help them? So that's why I kind of offer it that way. Let me help you take the responsibility off your plate with this. I'm not going at it as let me educate you because that's not collaborative. I'm like, what do you need to do? Because I know what I need. I know what my child needs, right? Or children for me. But, And that's the way I approach it is, is what do you need? What do I need? How do we work together to get it? And I think in this case, you know, I'm guessing schools will range based upon their level of knowledge and insight around, you know, some of these circuit court cases, for instance, the other one that just went through a week ago, to your point, you know, many schools may not be aware of that or may recognize that they're in a very conservative community that may not be supportive of this. And so bringing up some of this broader context, I guess, could be very helpful for a school that may not be thinking that way. Right. Yes. I think parents today are going to have to be way more knowledgeable on those things it's stated. So one of the things I tell every parent to share with every school is the standards of practice, which are called schools in transition. It's a 68 page document. It is the standards of practice for school around gender. And it talks about facilities and it talks about names and it talks about records. It talks about how to answer questions that other caregivers might ask the school. And it usually gives three examples of responses. It's a great thing. And I always point out that there, I don't remember how many groups created it, but gender spectrum, HRC, there's quite a few in there, but I always point out that the National Education Association was part of the creation. So a non-Q plus organization was part of this. Again, I am totally working on strategy here. I am giving them something. So if there's a pushback of, well, this is all from the Q plus community, it's like, no, education was part of this creation. Yeah. It was a nonpartisan organization. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's really important to know. But part of what's in there talks about how all students 
you know, again, what is it, the person, your, your audience, the audience wants to know that everyone's education isn't going to be affected. And so they often talk about in there that all students do better in a more inclusive environment, even if they're not gender diverse to see a school support gender diversity actually has everybody do better regardless, because there's an understanding that differences are accepted. There is more work against bullying. A lot of people are affected by gender insults, for lack of a better term, right? Even if they're not transgender or or gender diverse. But now, like it used to be like, we could just talk about that and it's in the document and that's great. But now it's like, you need to be armed heavier, (laughs) which is the research behind it. The most recent one, I think, is the 2021 survey from GLSEN about the National School Climate Survey. I call it Gleason, but it's GLSEN is the abbreviation. And they do school climate surveys that show that academic outcomes in places are more inclusive versus less. So it's worth knowing and having that information to say, hey, this isn't because that's one of the arguments is why am I going to change everything for one student? showing them that this is about more than one student. It helps more than one student. That's great, Diana. And we'll make sure to include the details in our show notes for listeners. Okay. So facility use, we were just talking about as one key challenge or one thing that may need to be discussed in this shifting landscape of engaging with schools. I think the next thing we were going to talk about was broader disclosure. Yeah. I think it's important if you have a child that just transitioned or going to a new school to think about who would you want to know? And that this becomes a very important conversation with the child themselves. Who would you want to disclose to? And now it becomes really important before you go in that meeting to consider it. Because sometimes schools have their own idea. We think this person should know. And I find a lot of parents begin the journey very understandably just, okay, makes sense. The psychologist should know, the teacher should know, this person should know this And there's not one answer for that. I have no idea who should or shouldn't know. But what I say is like, just take a moment to think who needs to know? Why do you want them to know? And so I often encourage parents to think about it ahead of time. And then also know, and we've talked about this before, about FERPA, um, which is what I call the HIPAA for education. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What it states is you can't share personal information of a student unless it benefits their academics. And many attorneys said it's really a huge stretch. It's hard to say that gender identity, you know, helps their academics to share that. And I don't get into all of that. I just say, hey, we these are the people we want to know. We don't want anyone else to know. And you can let, like if your staff ever finds out and is like, how come you didn't tell me? Just let them know the parents knew about FERPA. And so... <laughs> They let us know. Based on purpose, you can't. So as a light way to kind of reference your knowledge and insight about legal matters. Absolutely. You let them know that you know it. And you, again, are collaborating with them like, hey, I'll take the responsibility for this one. You can, you, you have my permission to tell them I completely wanted to share it with you. However, these parents are educated in FERPA and they let us know that this is who they wanted to know. Yeah. I'll share there, Diana, that I know initially when Samantha transitioned, and again, this was eight years ago for us already. At that moment, I sort of didn't know how to not talk about it with people. It was like everything that was on our mind is this experience. And so it felt like everybody should know. And it just felt like a normal thing to be talking about because it was our everyday life of going through this transition. 
And we've talked in past episodes as well about how that's shifted over time and now how we really minimize who we tell. And so even as we transitioned to this new school district, I was put in contact with an administrator, like a student support leader. And that individual recommended we tell, just like you mentioned, the school psychologist, the counselor, the principal. And initially I was like, okay, I felt comfortable enough because I trusted this person based on references and insight from other people. And because the policies at the school are supportive. And after thinking about it and after talking with you, Diana, I pulled back on that and actually went back and asked this individual not to share it with those people at this point in time, knowing that we can make a different choice at any point in time, but it feels more empowering for us to be owning that and to choose and to believe that they don't really need to know from our perspective. And if there was some reason why they did need to know, then let's have a different conversation. And exactly. It's a totally fine question to ask, which I've had to ask myself is like, why do you think those people should know? What do you think the benefit of them knowing? Understanding like, I don't know what goes on in school. So let me know. And then like, well, give me a chance to think about it. And I also would say like, I have to get Clark's permission. It's his information, not mine. But a lot of the thinking behind it, a lot of, you know, is like, well, if something happens, I want them to have someone to go to. I'm like, well, the psychologist knowing isn't going to give him something to go to because he has to have a relationship and it depends, you know, your child, but I know my child, Clark is not going to go to anyone he does not know and have a relationship and trust. So just knowing they know isn't, he's still going to want to go home. I don't want to talk about any of you. Well, and I think that that's another thing that's really changed, honestly, in the last eight years. And as our kids grow up, it's like now they do have access to a cell phone. So if something were going down, like my kid can just text or call me and hopefully I'm in a position where I can answer that. Right. So they don't need to have a teacher that they can go to if they can get access to their phone. Yep. And I've always told them, like, just go to the nurse's office, tell them you're sick, tell them you're going to throw up or something and tell me you have a migraine. I don't care what, but just that's savvy get a call to me. Yeah, Mm. that's a savvy way, right? If you can't have access to a phone, then that's a way they can still contact you right away. Think of a health thing that can't be proven, right? Fever can be proven, but headache, (laughs) about to throw up, can't be proven. So awesome. And probably they do feel like they're about to throw up if something's going down. So it's not a lie. (laughs) Yeah. I think what's gotten trickier are names and pronouns. Schools seem to be, from what I'm hearing, a lot pushing back a lot about using any other name than a legal name. And again, this is where it's really important to know the arguments against. One of the arguments against is uh, the whole, and I don't want to get into it, but parental rights. So if you are the parent or guardian going to the school for your child, and I'm so sorry for the kids that don't have the support, but if they're like, no, we have to use legal names, it's like, why? Because I am the parent or guardian, and I'm saying I want you to use this name for my child. So there's that part of it that why schools are kind of skittish is because of the arguments of parent parental rights. Yeah, which I'm just shaking my head, and I don't, I don't want to talk about. I don't want to talk about it. I know, and, and I'm seeing that. Just for our listeners, quick overview there. If you have no idea what we're talking about, is and this was what happened in my prior school district. Their concern was the ruling was by the school board that teachers and administrators were not to use a preferred name unless the parents were aware of and giving express permission to use that name and gender pronoun. So that's the broader conversation here. And I think we've talked about that a little bit in the past and 
our perspective clearly is that we think that can be really harmful to kids who unfortunately don't have right. support in that way. But if you are the parent or guardian going in for your child, just know that that's usually the reason and then be like, I totally understand that there's some concern there, but I am the parent or guardian and I am giving permission. So there's that aspect of it. But then the other aspect is understanding why they need the legal name. And I, I I'm sure it's going to be different in each state. So it's important to understand why do they need the legal name? Most of the time it's because there's a state reporting system. And so that's how they track the kids and that's how they have to do it. But that's usually something sent out X number of times a year. And so related to like testing of some sort, right? That the the schools are on the hook, the public school system is on the hook to be sending back data about educational progress by legal names, et cetera, et cetera. I believe that's what you're referring to, Diana. I think so. Okay. <laughs> that's my understanding. So so yeah, yes. so that they're yeah. they're on the hook to okay. be delivering that data according to legal names, et cetera, et cetera. And so there can be a conversation around, well, how else can we support my child then with the desired name and pronouns, if it needs to be in that system this way, you know, what other mechanisms may we have? Yes. Then it's again, that collaboration. Okay. If it's the state that needs it, how, like, what are our options for here? What are our options when a substitute teacher comes? You know, for example, some schools have done it that they've put in their computer systems, the name um, that the student goes by, and then before they send it to the state, somebody's in charge of going in there, changing it to the legal name, sending the data to the state, and then changing it back. That's an old school option. But I know a lot of the systems now have, like if you call Skyward, if you call Infinite Campus or whatever they use, there are ways sometimes, depending on which thing, to change it within. So there are a lot of options. Like a nickname field or something like that, a preferred name or something like that that might be different than the legal name. Right. Yeah. And then I think lastly, we were going to recommend parents and loved ones think about the implications of just knowing key individuals within the school system. So we're talking about um, your superintendent is key. Uh, potentially your principal, but really insightful, especially if you're just moving into a district, you're not familiar with them, <laughs> getting some insight, either I would recommend either from neighbors or other families about the school board. And this is a key learning that I had is I really didn't understand how much the school board is driving a lot of these decisions and policies. So it's really important to understand what kind of policies and direction is that school board actually heading and what are their preferences and how are those things showing up? Absolutely. You know, um, most schools have a non-discrimination policy, so you can look at districts, so you can look at what the, does the non-discrimination policy include gender identity and gender expression. Now, it's not a blanket if they have it, you're safe, or if they don't, you're not, because I've seen <laughs> exceptions to both of those. However, it's good to know ahead of time I've also heard of schools and districts, and even with Clark, I had the experience when we moved of being threatened. I felt threatened to go to the school board because of something I asked for him to use the boys' facilities and not the gender neutral one. And the superintendent was like, well, then you'll have to ask the school board knowing that we wanted privacy and that's public record. And I said, no, we won't. <laughs> and we hadn't moved to be clear about that, but 
no, we won't for me meant if that's the only way to make the decision, then I've just made the decision not to move. Mm. So, and not everyone has that luxury, but I really would think long and hard on those options, understanding who are you up against to your point on the school board and knowing that that's typically public record. Yeah. And even this conversation about having to go to the school board, I think that's one of these, again, key reasons we chose to move is because my understanding is there's no way to go to the school board in any private manner. The only way the school board engages is in this public Public forum. forum. And so not only are you in this group of I don't know, somewhere between five and 10 or maybe even 12 school board members, but the public shows up to these meetings. And so you would definitely not have an opportunity to maintain any level of privacy. And sometimes you have to consider what are your other options? Some people don't have the luxury of options, but it's worth, I always tell people like, put all your options on the table. If you can, even if you can't take it just to, so we know what's there, whether that is, is there another public school in your area? Like whatever, depending on the policies, can you switch? How does that work? Is there a private school? Is that an option to you? Is there homeschool? So just even if it's like, I can't homeschool, I work full time, you know, that wouldn't be an option. It's like, fine, but like, let's just explore what all the options are. And unfortunately for some people, none of it may be available, but it's worth opening up to see what's possible. The only other thing I would mention with whatever you're working on is it's understanding the hierarchy, like figure out who your allies are, I guess is my point. It's the principal, your allies, but it's also knowing the hierarchy. The teacher may be your ally, but they have to answer to the principal who has to answer the superintendent and they all have to answer the school board. So it's understanding where the allies are and what movement you can have at the different levels, if that makes sense. Yeah, what level of influence is potentially available for any of those stakeholders? I think that I really had no idea. I had, before our last experience, these last few years, I had really no idea what role the school board actually played. That was fascinating to me. I'm sorry that you had to learn that. Yeah, well, I mean, I just didn't realize that the superintendent really takes direction from the school board. And in my experience, you know, I did find great allyship from the assistant superintendent. So that's maybe a role we hadn't talked as much about today, but I just mentioned that I would love to encourage people to be hopeful there will be allies somewhere in that sort of list of potential stakeholders to be engaging with. And often these people can be really creative to help you come up with supportive ways, even if it's not exactly what you want, but to find a way to help both you and your kid feel safe and have some version of security in their experience at school. Exactly. Some people are very toe the line. They're afraid of who's above them and what can happen, like their job security. And and that's not right or wrong. It just is. It's just knowing like this is a person that to your point is not going to be creative. And there are, I've met some teachers, administrators, you know, different levels that are willing to be creative and justify it, interpreting the rules the way they will. And it's just knowing which one you're dealing with. And I think it's hard to kind of even necessarily know, but you can get a feel for it, I think, just based on the way that they engage and interact with you. Because I know that's something I was uncomfortable with is thinking about putting a teacher in a position that could, you know, risk them their job. That's not something we were interested in doing. 
of course, right? These educators give so much and make so many sacrifices to show up the way that they do every day that I didn't want to add something else to their plate or expect them to do something that was abnormal. And sometimes you'll find people who do feel comfortable enough sort of towing the line or feel enough confidence in that it falls within limits according to the way they see it. And it doesn't feel like a risk to them. At the end of the day, it's, it's a little bit about how do people navigate risk, right? And that's what I would say to your first point is that the teacher can decide. I mean, the teacher can decide what risks they're willing to take on or what interpretations they are willing. I just, again, approaching it collaboratively, like saying like, this is the way I see it is that you can make this decision without the school board because of X, Y, and Z. Tell me how you see it. And if they're like, oh no, mm -mm," it's like, all right, there you have it. You know what I mean? So it's that collaborative approach, but also make your offer and let them decline it. Yeah. I, I think that concept of make your offer is make it known what you want. Be really clear about what you're seeking and make an ask because all they can ever do is say no. And that's, that's the worst that you'd be facing and then try with somebody else. <laughs> Go back to the option board. If you can, <laughs> I have hope that things will get better. We're in a tough time, but I have hope things will get better. Well, I feel a lot of hope just in you sharing that news that I had missed that the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals reinforced that case. There's this Whitaker case in 2017 and just again this last week that requires schools to support kids in using the facilities of their identified gender. So that actually that buoys me a bit. And for reference, that's the beginning of August 2023 that that decision was made. In case you're hearing it this at a different time. <laughs> oh, and hey, we've heard from listeners so curious about your trip. So Diana, when are you going to Mexico? We aren't going until October, mid-October. So maybe I'll have a report by November of how that all goes. And um, I had a great conversation with my dad <laughs> after that podcast and before, because I let him know it's going to happen. And so I think we're all ready to go. Okay. Well, so we have to wait a couple months for the... For the unfolding yes. of that experience. Well, good luck to everyone who is starting or engaging with school soon and talk again in a couple weeks. That's a wrap on this episode of Transparently Speaking. Thanks for joining us today. Join us again on the 1st and 15th of every month for our next podcast. Thank you to Filter for our awesome music. That's P-H-I-L-T-Y-R. Check them out at Apple Music, YouTube Music, Spotify, or anywhere you download music. As a reminder, we welcome your feedback and questions. Email us anytime at transparentlyspeakingpodcast at gmail.com. If you're taking something away from our podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take a moment to provide us a review. The more listeners and reviews, the more people we can reach and support. Thanks in advance. Cheers from Joy and Diana. <laughs>